Hello, everyone, and welcome, welcome to ABC Gotham here in New York City History Podcast, bringing you weird, cool New York City history in alphabetical order. We give you one episode for every letter of the alphabet, with the exception of M, where you got two episodes. True. Kate is my co-host. Hello, Kate. Hello, everyone. Everyone, two episodes ago, we did X. One episode ago, we did Y. You know what that means? We're finally on Z. We are finally on letter Z. I can't believe... I. You know, when we started this, I wasn't sure if we were going to make it all the way to Z. I wasn't too sure. I had faith. You had faith. Well, good thing you did. And here we are. We are actually recording episode Z. I... I... I well done, Kate. Yes, well well done, Kathleen. I, I'd also like to say, starting next season, we won't be able to say one topic for every letter of the alphabet. We'll have to say two topics, right? Oh, man. Is that going to sound awkward? Or we can just say a different topic for every letter of the alphabet. Maybe we'll have to do that, because Lord knows this podcast never has and never will sound awkward. Never. Um... So, so Kathleen, here we are. Episode Z. Episode Z. I know. It's I've been thinking about it all day. I'm super excited. Me too. Me too. I've been doing tons of research. I went to the library today. Whoa. Well, I'm super excited for Z because I feel like when we restart the alphabet, mm-hmm. I feel like we kind of research was so much easier on the early the early letters. <laughs> the early letters? Yeah. <laughs> we, Why we, would that be, do you think? I, I don't know. Maybe we were like fresh faced and <laughs> so innocent and naive and, naive. and, and energetic. We didn't know yeah, about Robert yeah. Moses yet. Right, right. Our, our, our enthusiasm and, uh, hadn't been burned out of us. We weren't cynical yet. <laughs> I don't know. I'm that cynical, but. No, you're not that cynical. Well, here we are. We are at episode Z. Kate, what is our topic for episode Z? Tonight's topic is zoning. Zoning. Hey, everybody, it's about zoning. No, wait, come back. I know, it doesn't sound sexy, but it's awesome. Mm -hmm. Think about how much your everyday life is really affected by this. There's not one thing that you do living here in New York City that's not affected by this. Where you live, where you work, the subway, the building Mm -hmm. that you walk by every day, the parks. Mm -hmm. It's pretty Mm -hmm. amazing. It's absolutely true, yes. And we... Uh, applaud you for even clicking play on an episode whose <laughs> title is initially so boring, but I, you, you will not regret it. You are going to learn so much cool stuff and, and about things that just surround you all the time that you, that you would never have even thought about why they look the way they do or why they work the way they do. And that is why we are bringing you zoning, which is way cooler than anyone could have ever imagined. I know I was super impressed when I did all my research and everything I learned. Do you yeah. feel the same way about all the research you did, Kate? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. You got, I That's... got to learn a lot more than I ever thought I'd learn about zoning. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So let's begin. We are going to jump in. So I've looked at the city websites. I've looked at a lot of zoning blogs. There's a lot of zoning fans out there. There's a lot of people who are like really into city planning and, and urban planning and Basically, for those of you who are who've never really thought about it and, and are just barely hanging on in spite of yourselves listening to something about zoning, I'll start with zoning shapes the city. Urban planners like to use a comparison, uh, compare it to like a thermostat. So good zoning can raise or bad zoning can lower the habitability of the city by degrees. It can make it a better place to live. It can make it a worse place to live. I won't get into really dry little details. Don't worry. Or if I do, Kate, your job is to be like, Kath. Don't worry. I'll rein you in. Move on. Okay. (laughs) Basically, you're either residential, commercial, or manufacturing. And they regulate where areas can be residential, where it can be commercial, where it can be manufacturing. They regulate this because the city, you know, our infrastructure, our systems, they can only handle so many people in one space at one time. So if you imagine, you know, the tall buildings of Midtown and the offices, you got to think about 
the power. You got to think about the water. You got to think about transportation, getting people to and from. You got to think about just literally crowding, literally space and keeping that area livable, whether it's 9 a.m. on a Monday morning or midnight on a Friday. In the case of residential areas, you have to think about crowding in terms of how much room there is in the schools, what the sanitation systems can handle, uh, how many patrons the libraries can handle, um, how many playgrounds there are and how big they are, what hospitals are available. I mean, there are things that a city needs to provide to its people, but they need to keep the, the supply of those resources in line with the amount of people or, you know, more accurately, they need to limit the amount of people to what is reasonable given the resources. So that's kind of just what zoning is. Now, zoning is just a bunch of guidelines that we have a lot, a lot, a lot of guidelines, and it's not written in stone. Here's the cool thing about zoning. It is almost always looking out for the little guy. And this surprises some people, and of course there are some horrible examples of zoning doing quite the opposite. But The Barclay Center. What? 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 <laughs> what? Uh, here's a quote. Zoning has always concerned itself, for better or worse, with social matters, such as banishing noxious uses, says Julia Vitello-Martin, who is a senior fellow at the Regional Plan Association. That just kind of gives you an idea of, like, currently there are changes afoot that are ostensibly there to make the city better for you and me and, you know, not necessarily the rich guys. Because honestly, life is just fine for the rich guys. Yeah, definitely. I feel like you have to have all these laws in place, especially mm -hmm. in a city like New York, where space is very limited. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and mm -hmm. without all these rules... Exactly. You would have tenements again. You'd have mm -hmm. people, you know, people, the less fortunate people um, and the middle class just kind of scrambling right. over the smallest portions of the city and the rich just continuing to spread out and make these big mansions. Yeah. And you'd have your toxic waste dumps and your, and your garbage disposal areas wherever. I mean, a lot of it's about protecting quality of life for everyone. So, uh, so zoning determines basically, you know, at, at its, at its inception, it was determining the size and the use of buildings, where they're located, and in large measure, the density of all of the city's neighborhoods. Uh, New York City has been a pioneer in the field of zoning since it enacted the first comprehensive zoning ordinance in 1916. So before we go into a little bit of the history. Oh, I actually know about this one. As we practice zoning in New York. Zoning and its achievements have become the envy of other cities, even Paris. No. Uh-huh. The French Minister of Sustainable Development selected New York and its zoning innovations for a study. Some 150 French and European mayors, urban planners, developers, and architects toured recent local triumphs such as the High Line, Brooklyn Bridge Park, and community regeneration projects in the Bronx, and here's what they said. Ready? I'm ready. The resurrection of New York, hit in its very flesh and its pride by the September 11, 2001 attacks, is nothing short of astonishing, Aww. wrote Jean-Louis Cohen in the program's introduction. Mr. Cohen is a historian, and he added that although zoning, quote, was originally a German invention, it has been greatly perfected in New York City since 1916, end quote. Nice. So, not only did we basically invent it, apparently we have perfected it. So, here's um here's the thing about this this particular podcast. There will be many many pictures. Many. Many many I'll be referring to a lot of things that's going to be helpful for you to see. So, if you can open another browser window while you listen to this and go to the Facebook page and look at these images, that will be very very helpful to you. Pictures, 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 because a lot of this is stuff uh, New Yorkers walking around you see every day. People in other cities walking around, you see very similar things, because a lot of these, you know, rules and things have been adopted by other cities. But it really helps to have the images in front of you so you can understand why something is so heinous or why something is so wonderful. And to begin with, we will start by discussing the Equitable Building. 
Yeah, so, so open your Facebook page and look at the equitable <laughs> building. Or just Google equitable building. Or Google equitable building. Yeah. It'll just be easier if you like us on Facebook and look at mm-hmm. our page. <laughs> so a little background before we go into the equitable building. As early as the 1870s and the 1880s, and this is as taller residential buildings begin to appear in Manhattan, New Yorkers were starting to protest the loss of light and air. So the buildings get taller and taller and it turns into like these caverns down on the ground. Right. This is this is this is 1880s. In response, the state legislature enacted a series of height restrictions on residential buildings and this culminated in the Tenement House Act of 1901. Now, by then, New York had become the financial center of the country and These businesses are expanding and they need space. They need office space. Also around this time, they had introduced the steel frame construction. So now there are elevators. I was going to say, you're missing the invention of the elevator. Uh We really wouldn't have skyscrapers, of course, without it. There would be no skyscrapers without elevators and without steel frame construction. So we've got these two things, which means the technical restraints... That had limited building height vanished. You know, before you could do a 10-story building if you had anyone willing to walk up 10 stories every day. Now, there is no restraint on how high it could be. So, the Manhattan skyline was beginning to assume its distinct form. And this is when, in 1915, the Equitable Building happened. The 38-story Equitable Building was erected in Lower Manhattan, This is when everyone's like, oh no, we need to control height and we need to control form of everything we build ever, ever from now on, or we're going to wind up with a million of those. So the equitable building, as you can see in the image, rises straight up from the ground, no setbacks, all the way up to its full height of 538 feet. It is a monolith. I kind of hate, I kind of am not a huge fan. I mean, I hate what it does to the area around it, but the building itself is sort of nice. It's sort of I guess striking, so. you know? It's striking in a scary kind of way. Yes, in a scary kind of way. It it cast a seven-acre shadow over neighboring buildings. It affected their value because of, you know, the buildings around it didn't want to be sitting in the dark all day long. And it set the stage for the nation's first comprehensive zoning resolution. So some of the sentiments or quoted here from the New York City Landmarks Designation Report, quote, it was said that the equitable blocked ventilation, dumped 13,000 users onto nearby sidewalks, choked the local transit facilities, and created potential problems for firemen. The equitable's noon shadow, someone complained, enveloped six times its own area. Wow. Stretching almost a fifth of a mile, it cut off direct sunlight from the Broadway fronts of buildings as tall as 21 stories. You're 21 stories in the air, and you still don't get any sun. Amazing. The darkened area extended four blocks to the north. Most of the surrounding property owners claimed a loss of rental income because so much light and air had been deflected. People didn't want to live there. And so they filed for a reduction in the assessed valuations of their properties. They were paying high taxes on this previously prime real estate in lower Manhattan. And this other building goes up and suddenly no one wants to rent in their building anymore. So, you know, they have less valuable property as a result of this. I mean, it's just, and it's not like the people in charge of the equitable building were like, ooh, let's screw over everyone. Let's overwhelm the the facilities and the transportation and, uh, you know, the lunch counters every day. At night. Let's, <laughs> let's ruin this. They had their block of land and they built their block of a building, but it it had repercussions. I mean, I can I can kind of see their if you take yourself back in time, you can kind of see their point of view. Imagine these buildings just entirely engulfing streets they really thought Mm -hmm. it was just going to be all the streets would be pitch dark in the middle of the day yeah imagine what the equitable building imagine even two or three of those on a block and and what that can do it could it would be unpleasant it wouldn't be unlivable you know they talk about ventilation and stuff like there's still air it's still light you can walk (laughs) around but it would be considerably less pleasant so there are a couple other forces at work around this time There are housing shortages, which are caused by the influx of new immigrants. This created a market for tenements. And, of course, tenements, they want to 
pack in as many people as possible and have as few housing standards as possible. And when I say they, I mean the haves as opposed the, to the have-nots. The landlords, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the landlords. Um, warehouses and factories began to encroach upon fashionable stores along Ladies Mile. They were edging no. uncomfortably close to Fifth Avenue, and that was making the fashionable people and the wealthy people not happy. They wouldn't want warehouses and factories in the area, especially things like tanneries, breweries, uh, soap making, the rendering. I mean, there's some foul <laughs> yeah. uh, work going on in some warehouses and factories. I just understandably, love that no you brought up like ladies row like that that yeah, always just mile. makes me because god forbid you know the ladies have to see any of that stuff exactly exactly they might they might get the vapors we don't want to we don't want to subject our our women folk to you know that kind of deprivation industry yes <laughs> Uh, so intrusions like these, and then the impacts of all these rapid growth areas with all the immigrants coming in, added some urgency to the calls of reformers who are, you know, begging for restrictions separating residential areas from commercial areas from manufacturing areas. And also, uh, reformers are calling for new and more effective height and setback controls. For all uses. So setback is something you're going to hear a lot about when it comes to skyscrapers and buildings. And that just has to do with how the equitable building just rose straight up into the air. Yeah. And had and had no like terraces. It didn't get smaller towards the top. And uh, height restrictions and setback controls uh, are pretty much what the city put in place to prevent a building like the equitable from happening again. And that just means that as the floor space gets smaller as we go towards the top and again you can look at any of the images we have there illustrating setback controls then you get more light you get more air you're not blocking light from the buildings around you right so the concept of enacting a set of laws to govern land use and bulk was revolutionary like we often are in new york city but the time really, really had come to do something about this, the growth, this huge growth. So it was 1916, they introduced the Groundbreaking Zoning Resolution. This was a really simple document, actually. It established height and these setback controls. Um, according to Columbia University's Andrew Dolcart, the law worked by regulating building shape rather than height. So what he wrote is... The idea was that light and air would reach the sidewalk. Light and air were a major issue. So the law stated that you could build right up to the lot line on your building, and you could rise up to a certain height. But once you reached that height, you had to step back. You had to set the bulk of the building back. So this is why New York skyscrapers from that period have this particular profile. So if you look at the Hexer building on Fifth Avenue, and there's an image there, uh, this building stacked smaller and smaller boxes on top of one another, and there's like that crown on top. So other architects experimented with cascading setbacks and buttresses. Some people refer to this as like a wedding cake design, but it's just, you know, smaller and smaller as you near the top, and that's how you get light and air. That's how you are a good citizen. That's how you don't cover seven acres with your sh with the shadow from your, your building. Your massive monoliths. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. So due to the problem with residential crowding and tenements, the code also designated residential districts. So this excluded things that they saw as incompatible uses. And this is where they established the familiar scale of three to six story residential buildings found in much of the city. In case you've ever wondered about that, you know, if you're looking at an apartment building, it's usually not two stories high. And it's usually not more than six stories high, unless there's an elevator in it, then you get into the, the I've, I, I've known when I've gone to look for apartments, when I've gone to um, uh, try to rent, you know, when I have to move or rent a new place, mm -hmm. I've always mm -hmm. counted the floors and yep. been like, ah, oh, only five? Uh, I don't know. That means I'm going to be on the <laughs> fifth floor and I got to walk yeah. up. And I, I am uh, one of the proud of the few who's had the, the fifth floor walk up in the no elevator building. And, you know, you get really good calves, really well-developed uh, muscles from that. You just get used to it. But it's uh, I can understand why 
there is a law saying if there's going to be more than six stories, there better be an elevator in that place because you're not going to find too many people willing to rent. And I feel so bad for parents. Oh, my God. Getting a stroller up that high? Forget it. I know. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, so yeah. So, I mean, this this was huge to me just to, just to walk around the city and have, you know, three to six story buildings around you, as you will in many of the residential areas and that this is when they set that up and just how how universal that is how ubiquitous it is to be, see that and to not even really perceive why they are that particular height but it was 1916 when they introduced those rules and that's that's why they are that high um so this new ordinance became a model for urban communities throughout the United States, as other growing cities found that New York's problems were not unique. They're having the same immigration and uh, expansion and building and skyscrapers going up in cities all over the country. And they find that our solutions in New York were were pretty good solutions. And that's why you'll see six flats in Chicago. And um, can't really talk about too many other cities. <laughs> structures. How do, how, do the, how do the apartments look in Virginia, Kate? Um, we don't really have a lot of tall buildings. Not <laughs> well, tall buildings. in the in the part of Virginia I'm from, uh, right, right. Like I can't really think of too many skyscrapers in south in southern Virginia. DC though, um, I feel like DC though has that like monolith thing going on, and t- I mean their their buildings can only be that zoning as well can only be like a certain height. They can't be higher than the Capitol. Yeah. Is it the capital? I also heard it can't be higher than the spires on the top of the National Cathedral. Uh, that I'm not too sure, but I know the National Cathedral is located on a physically higher part of uh, land. It's it's uphill of a lot of the city. So, but but they definitely have the take. I'm thinking specifically of the mall area, but like take over the entire block and. But I mean, I, the the it's a little differently designed in that there are wider streets and the streets are wider. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But that's not our city. <laughs> this is not ABC DC. This is ABC Gotham. Maybe right? we could do a season on uh, other cities eventually. Yeah. Maybe we could for our loyal listeners. This tiered look also kind of in- affected design as well because then that's mm. really the Art Deco look is that tiered look, right, Kathleen? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I would definitely say so. In fact, um, you don't see too many Art Deco monoliths. Out no. There, so... Not really. Except for the one, the women's prison by Jefferson Market, which oh. you liked. I don't know why you're so prejudiced against that building. Because it's ugly. It's I disagree. Ugly we will have to agree to disagree. Yes, we will. Refer to uh, episode J for more information about this yeah. disagreement. You, feel free to, we will still take votes on that. So yeah. feel free to, <laughs> to vote on who's right. Exactly, because so far Kate's winning, and I really need people to support me and, and <laughs> convince Kate that it's a hideous building. But I digress. Uh, while other cities were adopting the New York model, this model itself was refused to stand still. There are constant changes. So the zoning resolution was frequently amended to be responsive to major shifts in population and land use caused by a variety of factors. More and more immigration, swelling the city's population from 5 million in 1916 to over 8 million in 2010. Their new mass transit routes, the new growth corridors they created, the emergence of technology, and the economic and lifestyle changes as a result of that, the introduction of government housing and development programs, and, perhaps more than anything else, the increase in automobile usage which revolutionized land use patterns and created traffic and parking problems that they never imagined in 1916. Obviously, this has to be a fluid document. Obviously, it has to be open to changes. There will always be changes, and uh, and that's some of the most fun of zoning. So, eventually, after revision after revision after revision, it was a massive wad of solid revisions. Eventually, they decided... The original 1916 framework needed to be completely redone, completely overhauled, completely reconsidered. So after lengthy study and public debate, the city passed the 1961 zoning resolution. The new regulations were largely the vision of Mayor Robert F. Wagner, 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 and... 
power broker Robert Moses. Our favorite. Our favorite power broker, master builder of them all. So the 1961 zoning resolution was a product of its time. It coordinated use and bulk regulations. It incorporated parking requirements. And it emphasized the creation of open space. So here's... This is cool. It introduced incentive zoning. And that means you could build your building taller if the developer of the office building or the apartment towers, if you incorporated a plaza in your project. That sounds like cheating to me. Cheating? Why is that? You're still taking over a massive amount of space and light and air. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm just saying, it looks like a monolith. Yes, yes. So here's the thing. Here's what's so cool. There's this new theory. The Lever House, 1952, was uh, Le Corbusier. Is that how you pronounce it? Corbusier, yeah. Le Corbusier's, quote, tower in the park model. This was influencing urban designers of the time and the concept of incentive zoning, where you're adding additional floor area for public amenities, began to take hold. The Lever House was the first, one of the first examples of this, Mies van der Rohe's Seagram building, a burnished copper and glass building with simple reflecting pools in a plaza fronting on Park Avenue. This and the Lever House created a sensation in midtown Manhattan. This was amazing. This was huge. There were this public arcade and this open space and a garden and a, and a in the case of the Lever House, it was like a kitty corner pedestrian route, and it linked Park Avenue to East 53rd Street. Whoa, what, what? These guys, this is amazing. Let's make a million buildings like this. They're so boring. They're so boring. They're so weird. It's <laughs> You can see it all up and down 6th Avenue, Avenue of the Americas, in Midtown. These huge, huge monolithic buildings that do not occupy 100% of the lot. They occupy 25% or half or whatever. And they have this plaza, this privately owned public space. So, so the buildings that we're talking about are part of this movement called the International Style. It's a architectural style that emerged in the 1920s and 30s. Uh, it's If I'm going back to my art history days in college, which <laughs> has been a while, but um, it's kind of a reaction to the Art Deco movement and the Art Nouveau mm-hmm. movement, where everything's... A lot more florid. There's like things going on. There's interesting architectural details. This is really about simplifying the buildings as much as possible. Mm -hmm. Um, The typical international style high rise is usually it's a square or rectangular footprint. These are actually like rules that you have to follow. Yeah. Yeah. A simple cubic extruded rectangle form. Uh, the windows will always run in broken horizontal rows, usually forming a grid, mm-hmm. and all facade angles are 90 degrees. It's, it's very strict. Um, oh, it sounds just beautiful. It's, lo- I'd like to say it's lovely. I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a fan. It doesn't you sound may, beautiful. You may notice. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, this is, I feel like this is a really a way for them to get around the zoning laws. It's cheating. They're making these big monoliths <laughs> mm-hmm. that just take up a massive amount of space, but because they're like, hey, look, no, wait, there's like a park. See, there's open air. <laughs> then they totally get around it, which is <sighs> just cheating. cheating. I mean, it's all perfectly legal. And it is, I can, it is legal. I can understand them ugly. wanting to build as high as they can, and you may have a very striking look. And if you have to put like a fountain and some green space on the ground below, whatever, fine, no problem. I mean, I, I think you know they saw it as a trade-off that allowed the them to do spectacular-looking buildings to them at the time. Uh, but what we got in exchange. Us little ants on the ground. 
at first was very striking and very cool and very very uh you know novel but but for that to happen everywhere problems started to become apparent um so like this this idea with the plaza and the skyscraper this was based on leading planning theories at the time but you know aspects of these policies have revealed certain shortcomings over the years so the emphasis on open space sometimes resulted in this you know epic building that just overwhelms the surrounding and that open space that plaza that we you know that we worked so hard to get uh have not always been useful or attractive um there's an image there of ruppert towers which harkens back to episode b uh which I'm sure you've listened to a number of times, so I don't need to tell you why Ruppert Towers harkens back to episode B. But boy, are those ugly! And that plaza in front, that is ugly as well. It makes me think of Zuccotti Park. Like, it's a mm-hmm. park? No, it's not. It's a little concrete triangle that... Yeah, there's some green stuff there. That's not a park. No, it made it so that... I think that's part of the... The sea is it right across from the Seagram building or really close? It's it's just that whole area where there's all these tall monolithic buildings that take over. You really like no sun gets into Zuccotti Park. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, there's some, but it's not great. Yeah, yeah. That park. Um, so yeah, so so exactly like you're saying, Zuccotti Park is a great example. These these tower in the park developments. You know, the buildings are set far back from the street. They're seen as sort of isolating. And they're actually, they turned out to have been sort of contrary to that goal of creating like a vibrant urban streetscape. And another problem is crime. So street crime statistics were unusually low in the 30s and the 40s and 50s. And then there was a steady rise in the 60s, 70s and the 80s. So these privately owned but public open spaces, these plazas, these whatever whatever open spaces that are open to the public began to reflect danger began to be seen as dangerous areas illegal grills and fences were built uh and the the landowners would attempt to shut down to close these open spaces off to the public at off hours to lessen the incidence of crime they introduced spikes on ledges to prevent people from sleeping or sitting benches became a problem because they just attracted homeless people. So this original interest in having more open public space wasn't really something people wanted anymore. It was uh, an unpleasant thing. It turned into something bad. So it seemed like the success of the Seagram's building and the Lever House plazas were flukes. They were successful because they were an occasional oasis in an otherwise you know, otherwise urban city street wall along an avenue. It wasn't a situation where more of these is better. It was a situation where, wow, this is novel and interesting and unusual and great, but it's a spice, not the main ingredient. It should be used sparingly. My house smells like bacon. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, sorry, it does. <laughs> so this has been called, quote, the deadening tower in a plaza motif that resulted in wide and windswept public spaces avoided by pedestrians, unquote. And uh, can honestly, be seen along. When, I, when I think of this, I think of the former World Trade Center. Like, yeah. It was super windy. It, it wasn't a pleasant area to go hang out in. I love the Krispy Kreme down there, but... Oh, well, who doesn't love Krispy Kreme? Um, but yeah, it was just this, like, blank, empty area. Right. There's a big um, piece of art in the middle, but whatever. You, it wasn't a place you really wanted to hang out. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I don't work in Midtown or along 6th Avenue where I see those, and I imagine maybe the workers go down and eat lunch outside there, but I mean, who wants to eat their lunch choked by bus fumes and, like, I feel like most of those people eat at their desk. I I eat my desk. <laughs> so. so I don't know. I I mean I I don't think those plazas have achieved what they were intended to achieve. I don't think they are 
these welcoming public spaces that that people kind of wish they were and they are also not refreshing and fascinating because there's there's parks for that i i'm glad there's open space i'm glad light can get down to the street but they're you know the city has clearly fallen out of love with this tower and a plaza idea so now most of the city is still zoned according to the 1961 code but this post jane jacobs emphasis um, the pedestrian view has corrected a lot of these issues. So there are no longer plaza bonuses. And in fact, now they're giving incentives for ground-level retail. That retail, that's what's going to stimulate the, the streetscape better than any open, windswept, creepy, cold, creepy dusty plaza. plaza full of criminals. Yeah. So in the 70s, here's a super cool thing about zoning that I'm really excited to read about. You're going to like this. In the 70s, zoning practices started to consider the larger context of whole neighborhoods by designing special districts. There's a bunch of them in the city, and I'm going to tell you about the best one right now. The first one that they designated, which was theaters around Times Square. Aww, the yeah. theater district. I gotta yeah. say, though, I love the flower district when all the flowers are out. <laughs> I do like the flower district. I'm not sure that was zoned as the flower district. Had. I don't think it was. The garment but, district is actually zoned as such, but I don't know if the flower district is zoned as such. I'm I'm just throwing it out there that I like the flower yeah. district. Yeah, you you are in good company. Uh, so a special district designation permits areas with unique characteristics to flourish, rather than be overwhelmed by standard development. Now, in, the in 1967, the Planning Commission proposed an innovative zoning technique. It would preserve New York City's position as a national theater capital without curtailing construction of all these high-rise office buildings. Um, tons of office buildings are going up in Midtown in the theater district. Uh, with, they were replacing these old, uh, unprofitable two- and three-story theaters. So this plan to maintain the theaters and, and to encourage them, this is more than just like sentimental stuff or nostalgic stuff. There are compelling findings linking New York's preeminence as a national corporate headquarters, linking though that to its theaters, around which so many related activities like radio, television, shopping, dining, tourism, all of that started with the theaters. So the New York City Planning Commission acknowledged this relationship and perpetuated it by using incentive zoning. So rather than, like, tell people you can't build office space in Times Square, rather than saying that, which would be a stupid thing to say, because all the subways go there except the G. I mean, it's a great place to build new office space. Here's what they did. Within this area that was demarcated the Special Theater District, this is in 1967, they offered the developer an incentive in the form of a floor area bonus of up to 44%. You could build that many more floors in exchange for the promise to build a legitimate theater as well, part of the I project. I like the legitimate theater part of that. Uh-huh, I noticed that as well. <laughs> legitimate theater. What exactly do you mean by that? Hmm. Or whatever, they define that. So the special district stretches from 57th to 40th Street. It's bounded by 8th Avenue on the west and by Avenue of the Americas, or 6th Avenue, on the east. And this is the area where most of the, most of the city's legitimate theaters currently legitimate. exist. Yeah. Uh, incentive zoning, through the use of this carrot of additional density, sought to attract and, in effect, subsidize theaters and to shape development in accordance with this comprehensive plan. So now, thanks to this plan, there are five legitimate theaters, which otherwise would not have come into being. They were built under this innovative position. All five of them are in active use today. Isn't that great? That's pretty amazing. Yeah, that's great for legitimate theater, whatever that means. <laughs> I know, I keep thinking, like, legitimate theater just keeps going through my head. <laughs> Oh, they mean like not strip clubs. I, I is my guess. Come on, that's a legitimate and not movie form of theaters. entertainment. A movie theater isn't isn't a theater theater. You know, those are those are all legitimate forms of entertainment. Well, aren't you broad-minded? I respectfully disagree. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some other special districts. Would you like to hear about them? 
I would love to. All right. There is the special city island district. So the special city island district, and this, uh, we discussed city island in our episode I, Islands. This special district was adopted to preserve the nautical uses and to preserve the low-rise residential character of City Island. Special district regulations restrict the size and illumination of business signs. It limits building heights to three to five stories, and it makes it forces them to ensure adequate parking. So the only commercial and manufacturing uses permitted are those which reflect the nautical flavor of the island or serve the retail needs of the residents. Cool, huh? Let's go get some lobsters. I want to, yes. Another special district, another one in the Bronx, uh, just like City Island in the Bronx, is the Special Grand Concourse District. The Special Grand Concourse District was created to protect the distinctive art deco composition and scale of the Grand Concourse. And they did this by establishing bulk and design regulations and by limiting commercial uses to designated locations that will not conflict with the boulevard's traditional residential character. So it's not going to be overwhelmed by, you know, Target and Costco. And another very cool one is on Staten Island, and that's the Special Hillsides Preservation District. And the purpose of the Special Hillsides Preservation District is to preserve the hilly terrain and unique natural features of Staten Island by reducing hillside erosion, landslides, and excessive stormwater runoff. Cool, huh? That's pretty cool. I do yeah. love how I I actually do love driving through Staten Island because Yeah. I love when you first get in there, it's all hilly and It is, and it looks so different from the rest of the city. And totally. it wouldn't. They would have leveled that. They would have built all over that if they hadn't just preserved this and they're like, This is something that is cool and weird about Staten Island and we are gonna leave this cool and weird. Well then I, I love it. when you get to the south part of the island, if you take the Gothels Bridge off of Staten Island. Mm-hmm. Then you have this amazing flat marshy area. So It's very cool. It, there's a lot of cool stuff in Staten Island. We're going to talk about them a lot more. I promise next season a lot more. Yes. <laughs> Probably a little less about Brooklyn and a lot more about the other boroughs. But I do want to point out that I just mentioned two special districts in the Bronx and one special district in Staten Island. And there's a whole bunch of special preservation districts and I encourage you to read them. We will post the list right there. And underneath this, uh, where you are listening to this right now, check it out. It's super cool. You might even live in a special preservation district. You never know. I wonder. I wonder if I... Hmm. Yeah, that makes me wonder now if I live in a special preservation area. I know most of Fort Greene is uh, like a big brownstone area. and Most of them yeah. are historically preserved, so... I live yeah, in the, bra- you, the brownstone. You live district. in a brownstone. Yeah, I'm sure you are. Oh, I live in a brownstone. I forgot. <laughs> you are inside your house. It's been a long day. <laughs> Printing on my 19th century presses. So, Thinking okay. About zoning. Yes, zoning. So, all right. So, I have a little bit of a summation of zoning today and developments. And then I have a couple of things about zoning that I have always wondered that we will, that I will answer at the end of this podcast. But, so do you have any anything to say about zoning history before I move on to zoning today? Nope, go right ahead. All right. Some of the newest developments in zoning come from other cities around the world. So as, as much as we are, you know, really groundbreaking and innovative in New York, we have a lot of new things today that... Uh, that are ideas that we've gotten from other cities. The city selective bus lanes, which are great, actually. They are they help a lot with traffic. They were inspired by the rapid transit bus system in Bogota, Colombia. The very newly cool. accessible I know, it's very cool. The newly accessible waterfront borrows its sociable seating arrangements from Sydney, Australia, and even our controversial bike lanes come by way yeah. of close attention to how they set it up in Copenhagen. And that is a place to be if you want to ride a bike. I yeah, I love the bike lane. And be careful, there are as you know, we have a um mayoral race coming up. We do very have a mayoral soon. race coming up, yes. And um be careful because there are quite a few uh, mayoral candidates that I will not mention by name, but are very anti-bus lane, which I'm really surprised about. Anti-bike lane. Anti-bike lane. Like, they want to take yeah. them out. 
Yeah, I, I wonder about that. I'd want to take a closer look at his or her position and see if it's neighborhood specific because what come on what who what who says that well apparently they're especially targeting the ones in manhattan ah but they're anyway yes uh something to keep an eye to get off topic yeah yeah um so okay so i have had a few questions and i thought zoning could answer these questions and maybe you have wondered about these as well. The first one I wondered, and whenever I'm in Coney Island, is why there are like super blocks of nursing homes. Oh, I've actually kind of wondered that as well. Yeah, there's so many and so huge. And why Coney Island? Why the Rockaways? What are they doing there? Do you have a guess? Do you have any idea, Kate? I, I had no clue. Um. Well, I know when... When I retire, I want to live near the ocean. Yes, I do. <laughs> but you wouldn't want to live there now, right? No, not now. Especially not with the uh, the flood zoning. The exactly, with the floods. Yes, yes. Well, here is the why. One reason for building housing projects in the Rockaways, uh, nursing home housing projects, basically, was that the residents were thought not to need easy access to the city's job centers. Oh. Ah, yeah. They're all retired. So this made it a logical choice for nursing homes. As with much of urban renewal, it seemed like a good idea at a time. At the time. <laughs> um, yeah. So they, there are, there was a major rezoning plan for the Rockaways that they adopted in 2008. The housing stock in the Rockaways has been sort of chaotic. They've got these epic uh, housing projects, some epic nursing homes, and then a lot of tiny little bungalows, and and uh, so it's a little it's a little disjointed out there. And the city adopted a big rezoning plan. It's intended to rationalize development, to preserve surviving bungalows, but to encourage more retail commerce. And I wanted to read up on what they meant by rationalized development, but I had already reached my uh, limit of ten free articles at newyorktimes.com so and it is it is near the end of april but i will not be able to find out what they plan to do with coney island until may um i've also always wondered about co-op city co-op city is pretty cool if you've ever if you could go to the wikipedia page which we have a link for right there um it's epic it's huge it is the largest co-op project in the world um Ooh, I have a, a fun. I have a fun trivia fact about Co-op City. Ooh, what, what, what? So, um, my favorite author, Stephen King. If you're listening to this, you're my favorite author. <laughs> um, he has a series of books, The Dark Tower, and in one of his books, he has a character who lives in Co-op City. Yes. In Brooklyn. Yes. Because Stephen King didn't do the research to find out where Co-op City actually was, and uh. he just put it in Brooklyn. Uh-huh. Later on, finding out that it was in the Bronx, he had to explain it by saying it's a parallel universe. Parallel universe, yes. <laughs> Which totally I love plausible. In a parallel universe. <laughs> Co-op and, City's and in Brooklyn. And this is true. There are other aspects of the Dark Tower book that make it clear that it is similar, but not this universe. It works in the end, but I was a little like, really, Stephen? You just couldn't have <laughs> just done a little research. Somebody along the way didn't catch that. Uh huh. Uh-huh. Anyway, I'm they, very sorry. Co-op they City. actually it's... they mentioned that in the Co-op City Wikipedia page, and I think it's like oh, no way. in in one of the Dark Tower. How many Dark Tower books are there? There's seven, and then like yeah. an eighth that just came out. That's kind of part of that's it's part of that part series. Of so there's quite a few. This is a, a series of books. There's quite a few. And I think the Wikipedia page says the first, the earliest book that mentions Co-op City, it does say the Bronx. But then later books, when it mentions Co-op City, it says Brooklyn. And that he's fixed it in newer publications of that. So if you have a copy that says it's in Brooklyn, hang on to it. My copy says it's in Brooklyn, and then there's a whole reason that he writes into it on why. Because there's a point when she's like, oh, um, I live in Co-op City in Brooklyn. And they're like, where's Co-op City in Brooklyn? That's in the Bronx. (laughs) And then they, like, explain it. Um, Okay, so it's actually up in the plot. 
It's it's in the plot. Okay, um, then maybe maybe I misread that in the Wikipedia page. Yeah. Yes, and it's Mitchell Lama housing. Um, it it's huge. There's schools and hospitals, and they've got a couple of newspapers, and it's all cooperatively owned. Um, they've been through some financial crises, but uh, they've really triumphed as a as a group. They've really come together, and I. I encourage you to read the the Co-op City Wikipedia page, although it does not technically have too much to do <coughs> with zoning, but it's still cool. Um, something else I've wondered about all these huge new condominium towers. You know, there's a bunch going up in Fort Greene in your neighborhood. Right, all along the Williamsburg waterfront. Uh-huh, uh-huh, all along Williamsburg waterfront, a bunch in Chelsea, uh, like along 6th Avenue, around 23rd Street, and they just just sprouted up like mushrooms and you know i i see this and i'm like these this is a new form what's going on here and it's true it is a new form these are what's called tower on base condominiums tower on base zoning this was introduced in 1994 um it was a response to concerns about too high buildings in residential areas so on wide streets in certain districts Towers can be built, but they must be built on a five to eight story base that reaches the street line. So there's a couple of images there to show you what tower on base looks like. But basically that base is retail and, and other services. And then the the uh, apartments, the condos themselves rise up above that. And let's see. My last question that kind of bothers every New Yorker, especially East Village, Greenwich Village, West Village people. Why is NYU able to take over every goddamn thing it wants to do? Or Columbia. Hey, Columbia is not as bad, but has been accused of similar. Mm, <laughs> similar. Uh, you're, you're, I feel that you're a little biased on the Columbia front. I am perfectly willing to admit when Columbia is at fault. And, you know, I, I, I just read the newspapers. I, I don't follow either of their positions too closely, but I feel like NYU is. No, NYU vilified uh, uh, more than Columbia oh, is. NYU is vilified more, but they both do the same. They both do the same thing. So yes. Same so thing. last summer, the council overwhelmingly approved a series of zoning amendments for NYU. A bunch of changes, map changes that will allow the university to erect four buildings. Altogether, they're going to add a skyscraper's worth of classrooms, dorm rooms, and office space. And this is going to be in this very leafy little 12-block parcel um, occupied by two university complexes, two university apartment complexes, Washington Square Village and Silver Towers. And this is this area south of Washington Square Park, and it's sort of these huge, you know, built in the 60s or 70s, I don't know, apartment buildings. Tends to be for faculty and students. But there's a lot of green open space around there, too. Well, they're going to build for big buildings in there. Um, Christine Quinn, Council Speaker Christine C. Quinn, applauded the new plan in remarks before the vote, saying while she understood residents' concerns, she said, I think this plan appropriately balances the need of an important university to grow and expand, which is good for our city, with the historic neighborhood it's in. Opponents, of course, argue that the plan will do irreparable harm to the charm and low-rise character of the village by overwhelming it with bulky structures and thousands more students and workers. So hmm. here's the thing about this about this particular plan. NYU does build a lot, does buy a lot, is, you know, expanding. They technically won this battle. They are able to build these four more buildings, but it was with a modified plan. The plan was whittled down. First by Manhattan Borough President Scott Stringer, and then by City Planning Commission, and then by Margaret Chin, who is the councilwoman who represents the area. It was whittled down from a proposal that would have added an Empire State Building's worth of floor space. Wow. Um, it would have been seven buildings. So Ms. Chin says uh, what they passed, as opposed to what they proposed, the final plan was 26% less than the original. Less space, less destruction, less... Part of me feels like 
it, yes, it will definitely damage the character character of the of the uh, the village. But the other yeah. part of me is like, it's another of the haves, you know, versus yeah. uh, like the haves wanting to have their way. Because really, and they, you know, they're fighting and saying, "Oh, what's well, a great thriving artistic community?" I'm like, no, artists haven't lived in that neighborhood for fifty years. Like nobody That's can true. afford that neighborhood. If you live there, you yeah. either had that apartment since forever mm-hmm. or or you're a hedge you're fund incredibly manager. I mean, wealthy yeah and living in the or area you're more likely you're, especially as they get bigger and bigger you're a faculty or a student or a staff right. or and, especially if you're I mean, if you're an international researcher or professor or doctor or something like that and and part of the deal of getting you to move to new york is that they provide housing yeah yeah, I know an NYU student now who has decided to stay in NYU housing because she's like, otherwise, I would never be able to live in this neighborhood. Yeah. And yeah. she's like, I want the experience of being able to be here. So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's a great opportunity. It's a great neighborhood. And, and yeah, there's no way that teachers or students could ever live in a neighborhood like that. And, you know, Columbia kind of did the same thing uptown where they wanted to spread and grow their campus. And that's another example of the have versus the have-nots, where Columbia is the have and just buys and buys and buys all this property and forces out the people who are currently living there. Sure, sure. I wonder about that because, I mean, the expansion of the universities is a good thing, everything else being equal. Forcing people out of their homes, not a good thing. I can pretty much come down with absolute uh, ethical clarity on that side of the issue, but... Columbia and NYU expanding does mean jobs. It means jobs, more money, money for yeah. the city. I agree. Yeah. I agree. It's 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 a hard argument. It's a very hard. Yeah, argument. it's it's very very complex, and and zoning is complex. Running a city is complex, but hopefully by listening to ABC Gotham, we are helping you get a little bit more of a grip on that. Yeah. Yeah. I hope yeah. So. Kate, we did it. We made it to the I end of episode it. Z. Thank you, everyone, for you. listening to us this whole time. We are really happy with how our numbers have grown. Um, and for all the comments people have left for us, we really Absolutely. appreciate it. We do this for you. Without you guys listening, there is no point. Well, there's a little point. It's also fun for us, I should say. It's fun for us. We kind of did it not imagining anyone would listen to us, but uh, (laughs) I know. (laughs) now here we are at the end of the season. Yeah, and you're out there and listening, and we so, so appreciate it, and we love you so much. And please, please write in any thoughts, any questions, and especially any suggestions. For what we can yes, do definitely. in our next go through, we want to hear from you. If there's something you've always wondered about, just speak up. This is what we are here for, and we hope to bring you another amazing alphabet full of information when we resume recording. Right? Yeah, we'll we're going to take a slight break, and then we will have the next season ready to go soon. As yeah. we mentioned in the last podcast, we are currently looking for a location to have our trivia night. As soon as something happens, we will put it up on our Facebook page and send out invites. We hope as many of you who are local and not local can come as possible. So <laughs> definitely. we'll definitely give you some um, some time between uh, inviting you and the actual event. So please yeah. time keep to an buy eye on our Facebook tickets, page. Reserve hotels, you know, yeah, get leave yeah. if you're serving in the military, things like that. Yeah, totally. And we are going to have prizes, so... Yes, good ones. I, I really hope as many people come as possible, and it's not just Kathleen and I standing up there. <laughs> It'll be fun anyway. <laughs> quizzing each other. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so thank you so much for listening. Thank you, thank you so much. We really appreciate every single one of you. Keep listening. We hope you learn some interesting stuff and uh, and we hope you will continue to learn interesting stuff with us in the future. Yeah, and thank you, Kathleen. Thank you, Kate. This is fun. I know. We'll talk to you guys soon. Talk to you next time, folks. Bye. Bye. You could be here with me on this night in New York City. I wish you For more ABC Gotham, go to our website, abcgotham.podbean.com. Special thanks to Podcasting's Brock. Music for ABC Gotham is by Big Rude Jake. ABC Gotham is a K2 production, copyright 2013, all rights reserved. Yeah.
Cubic extruded rectangular. (laughs) A simple cubic extruded rectangular. Rectangular. God, I am having a really. Wait, are you drunk? Are you drunk? No, I wish. Take a breath. You can go go. really slow. A simple cubic extruded rectangle form. Mm. uh, 